Good morning, church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to be with your people this morning, to be able to know that we belong to you and that we worship you and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Does give peace to our souls, Lord, and we draw near to you because of who you are and what you've done for us. We know, Lord, that before we knew Christ, we were alienated. We were far from you. We didn't have a desire to worship you, to draw near to you, to commune with you. But as it is, Lord, you have melted our hearts of stone. You've given us hearts of flesh that beat for you. But even those hearts of flesh can be hardened at times. And so, Lord, we pray that you would soften us afresh by your word this morning and teach us and instruct us, even through this marvelous story that we just heard read. Show your love for your church and those, Lord, who are not yet part of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're entering into the final chapters of the book of Acts. This couple years series is drawing near to an end. And um, yeah, so we're entering into chapter 27 and dipping into chapter 28 today. So between this week's sermon and next week's sermon, God willing, we'll complete our sermon series on the book of Acts, one of the longest books in the New Testament. So way to go, church. Uh, we've done it together. And um, as we enter into chapter 27 and dip into chapter 28, we are going to, as you just heard read, listen to a fascinating story with really an amazing amount of detail. You might even notice, might even stand out to you, even by the longer text read. It all hangs together as a unified story, and few stories in the book of Acts, and it's all narrative, uh, few stories include this much detail. So one of the things that should be, you know, uh, popping up in our minds is, why? Why all this detail for this account that, that uh, marks Paul's journey to Rome? Okay, the book has been driving to this destination, and um, just for context, uh, last week, Pastor Daniel was in uh, chapter 26, and you can kind of summarize that as Paul's examination. He was being examined um, by the king in order that they would know what to write when they send him to Caesar, okay? If that <coughs> chapter 26 was the examination, trying to figure out what to write to Caesar, chapter 27 includes the travel plans and how to get Paul to Caesar, Okay? And so this is the journey from Jerusalem, or you could say Caesarea on the coast, to, to Rome. And uh, so what I want to do simply this morning is uh, I want to retell the story with some explanatory detail uh, just to help us get the story kind of in our bloodstream. And then I want to step back and I want us to reflect on the story, some of the main lessons that we're meant to take away from it. Okay, so I'm going to retell it, then we're going to reflect on it together and um, there's going to be, is there going to be a map? You have a map up? Um, you, can, you can put that up, Sean. There's going to be a map. I'm not going to slow down in a really academic way to try to, you know, highlight every last thing in this map because I think the most important thing is that you're grasping the sense of the story. And so, but I want you to be able to uh, look at it so you can kind of visually track uh, where this voyage leads. So let me begin. 
with part one of the story, travel plans and early delays. We're looking at verses one through eight. They're about to set out on their journey from Caesarea all the way headed to Italy in Rome. If the weather's good, it could be a one-month journey. If the weather's bad, an emphasis on bad, uh, it depends how bad it is and how long the journey will take. Paul is put under the watch of a man named Julius, a centurion, a leader of a hundred or so soldiers. On board the ships will be other prisoners and soldiers, the captain and crew, of course, other travelers, and I don't want you to miss this, even Luke, the good physician, the one who penned the book of Acts and the book that bears his name, the gospel of Luke. Luke is on board. That's why sometimes when you hear the story read, it says we. He's talking about, he's including himself in the story. And so they set out and they're off to a good start. So good that even this hardened centurion is kind to Paul. He allows them at Sidon when they port there uh, to <coughs> fill up the ship with goods um, for commerce. They're going to let Paul go and visit other fellow believers, literally you could say the friends. What a sweet way to refer to fellow Christians, the friends. He gets to go do that. But before long, they're back on board. They put out and the wind begins to pick up and they travel along the lee of Cyprus, this island. And if you're not familiar with that language, the lee of Cyprus, think about um, when you are walking and you're feeling just tons of wind, really strong winds, and then you walk behind a building. It's a windbreak, right? And so the lee of an island would be the place, the side of the island that's going to protect you from the wind. So they're traveling under the lee of Cyprus and then Move, moving north off the coast of Cilicia, they find a ship heading to Rome, okay? So now they're going to move from likely what's a smaller ship that's going to go along the coast to a much bigger ship. And this, clue, this, this is going to include all the same people before, but probably a lot more passengers. My text says later on 276 people are going to be on, <coughs> on board. And so... As they travel, the wind gets stronger and blows for longer periods. And it's blowing so much now that it's starting to blow them off course, starting to blow them out of the way and slow them down. So much so that to get some relief from the wind, they have to travel under the lee of another island, this time Crete. So <clears throat> all these ideas they had for their itinerary, they were good ideas, but now there's been many early delays as they've had this slow going, hard time against the wind. And this has now put them in a difficult position. These early delays have put them in a difficult position. Here's part two, a dangerous decision. Looking at verses nine through 12. Much time had passed. Okay, it's now past the fast that was already over. And that's talking about the Day of Atonement. And that's meant to give you kind of a mental signal of where this is at on the timeline of a year. And so this would put you in October, smack dab in the middle of the most dangerous traveling season, the time when storms would pick up and it wouldn't be safe to be out at sea, especially for any longer distances. And so there's a meeting. 
that takes place. You have the captain, you have the owner of the ship, he's got a lot of skin in the game. You've got the centurion, um, and then you've got others, people listening in, even the apostle Paul getting in on the conversation, and they're trying to weigh out the risk factors of the possibility of a ship, because <laughs> there they are in fair havens, and their question is, do we chance traveling from one port to another on the same island? Do we chance going from fair havens to Phoenix, because that port would be better to winter in, Okay. It would protect us more from the winds and the weather. And they're saying, do we take the chance? Paul, it not being his first rodeo when it comes to traveling, one who has actually, not, who has actually been in not one, not two, but three shipwrecks, I believe, up to this point. He says, I just would like to weigh in on this a little bit. You know, I'm on the ship myself. And he says, hey, uh, I don't think you should do it. I think it's a bad idea. I think it's too dangerous. Let's let the ship whether what it must, but lest we sustain a lot more damage and maybe lose our own lives, let's not take this risk. The possibility of getting blown out to sea if we can't make it to the next port. But they ignored Paul's advice. They're like, ah, we're going to go with the captain on this one. And so a dangerous decision was made. Part three, a devastating storm and a reassuring promise. Verses 13 to 38, the bulk of the story. They start out with fair skies, a gentle but deceptive south wind behind them. It's all smooth sailing, and everybody that was part of that meeting, except for the boss of Paul, was kind of going, feeling really good about the decision that we made right now. And in a moment, everything is going to change. This is where the creepy music comes in. Dun, dun, dun. A, tum- a tumultuous wind breaks in on them. Nor is a northeaster. Hurricane force winds hits them like a sucker punch in a street fight. And they are reeling from it. They're trying to secure the lifeboat. It's getting filled with water. They're trying not to lose it. So they're securing it. They're undergirding the hull, the fat part of the ship, um, to try to keep the whole thing together as it's getting beaten. They're doing everything they can to slow the ship down because they want to avoid being a statistic. And specifically, they want to avoid running aground in a place named Sardis that has uh, been known as kind of a ship graveyard. Many, many vessels have been sunk there, and they're going, if we get blown in that direction, we're going to be a statistic. And so they're doing all they can in order to avoid that being their faint. And so here they are, now violently storm-tossed. They're driven along helplessly. There's virtually nothing the crew can do at this point. They're at the mercy of the wind. They're probably just endured a sleepless night. And then in morning, as the light dawns, panic is setting in. They want to avoid being swamped as the waves are continuing to crash on deck. And so (coughs) they start to jettison their cargo. They start throwing valuable stuff Overboard, you got to imagine this, the kind of desperation you got to feel when the main reason you're sailing is to bring this valuable merchandise from A to B and you're like, let's just get rid of it. We're just trying to save our lives right now. It just shows the level of panic that they're feeling. And then on top of that, they're lost at sea. Their GPS goes blank. 
It's true. Did you read that in the text? Their GPS goes blank. The sun and stars that are crucial for navigation, they haven't seen in a couple days. They do not know where they're going. Okay, have you ever been on a trip, right? And it just so happens, you know, you're in the heart of the city, you're trying to find your way, and then your GPS dies. I've had that happen. Very frustrating. I won't tell you the words that I used in the moment. (laughs) Pastors fall too. Storms, this storm is not letting up. And hopelessness is setting in. They're starting to abandon hope. They are tired. They are hungry. They are unspeakably weary. And in a moment, when they needed a word, you know, if they ever needed a word, it's right now, a word of hope, some glimmer of hope. And then the Apostle Paul approaches the people on the ship and he digs super deep. From the bottom of his heart, he utters these words. I told you so. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what he starts out by saying. I mean, I, I feel like these, I was telling my kids this last these are the most human words we'll maybe ever hear the Apostle Paul utter here. Just like, you know, you can hardly resist it. He couldn't. He couldn't resist it. Like, I told you so. Okay, now that I got that off my chest, then Paul continues on here. I'll read the I told you so section. Since, this is verse 21, since... They had been without food a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Then verse 23. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And he says, so, this is his deeper word from the heart, okay? So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Okay, so now there's kind of this point where it's like, okay, now are you ready to listen to my ideas? Okay, this is what we need to do. We need to run the ship aground. We need to find an island and we need to run this ship around. That's the new plan, okay? And uh, after two weary weeks, they sense that land is near. They turn their depth finder on. Okay, they start dropping down string or whatever they do. They check how many fathoms and they're realizing it's like 20, 15, like it's going down. And so they're realizing like, whoa, we're nearing land, but it's late, it's dark, and they do not want to crash on rocks in the night. And so they start to let down anchors and just hope and pray for the day to come. Now, another little twist in the plot, okay? You got to keep in mind this whole time, the storm hasn't stopped, okay? The storm is raging through all of this, and they're trying to navigate this. They have a fresh hope here, but still don't know how they're going to land this ship. And um, the crew who's so experienced, they're the only ones that know what they're doing on the ship, right? Selfishness sets in. They're going, this is still extremely dangerous. And so they're going, like, we don't need to, like, we're going to lose this ship anyway. We might as well just save our own lives. And so they're like, okay, we're going to drop the anchors down. And then they go down, and instead of dropping the anchors, they're dropping the lifeboat. (laughs) And they're about to escape. They get caught, right? Right? And Paul says, 
He's like, unless they understand the ship, no one else is going to be saved. And so Paul knows that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And these experienced crewmen, the only ones that know what they're doing, are going to be part of the means that God's going to use to rescue the people on the ship and preserve life. And so here they are. It's still dark, okay? It's before dawn. Paul says, no one here has eaten in two weeks. Let's have a meal. So he encourages everybody to eat, to be strengthened um, by food. And you just see Paul all along this voyage, and especially in this moment right here, okay? People are still distraught. shows how dangerous it actually is that the crew themselves wanted to escape. And Paul's saying, let's eat. Cool as a cucumber, as they say. Level-headed, calm, you could say in a word, peaceful. He breaks bread in the presence of all and gives thanks to the God that he belongs to. And he, the God that he worships in front of everybody on that ship. And you could just imagine at this point, these people have been terrified. I mean, these people are weary. These people have been scared. They're still scared. Even the most experienced among them are frightened. And there's Paul, ready to break bread. Calm, peaceful. You can imagine them looking at him like, who is this guy? And who is the God that he worships? The God that he says that he belongs to. That word's been gripping me. That he belongs to. And so, they finish the meal, and that moves us to part four. The final part, a safe shore and an unusual welcome. Picking up in verse 39, going through chapter 28, verse 10. It says that they arrived. Now, okay, so it's, it's dawn now. So light comes up. They've been waiting for this moment, right? The storm's still raging, but now they can see land. They find themselves on some island. And they don't even recognize it, which signals to me they weren't aiming for it. It's a little hard to aim for something when you're violently storm-tossed, just being driven hopelessly across the sea, right? So they weren't aiming at it, but this is exactly what they found, and it is an island called Malta. Now, if you're looking at the map, right, Malta's over here. You can see all the lines going to it. You can barely see what it's pointing at, right? It's so small, you know, in terms of, you know, how it, how it lays out on the map in terms of its size, you can say, like, it's no bigger than the lead on your pencil tip. Okay, this is so small. I just want you to feel this for a moment. It's no bigger than the lead on your pencil tip. So basically, you're being violently storm-tossed. You're not controlling the ship at this point, okay? And you miss that speck. You're staying out at sea, and you're going to die. Hitting that speck is your only hope. And Paul, who received this promise, going, there must be a speck out there we're going to hit because God gave a promise. And I believe it's going to be just as he said that it would be. And it was, because they wake up in the morning and there's land. There is land. Now, and they're anchored down, um, but they're not out of trouble yet. This is still extremely dangerous, but we can see the winds of God's providence blew them to this little speck, right? And it's wild because um, this is actually, you could read scholars on this, they would all say, this is part of the original course now. So they were blown way off course and now like they're back on track. So they're waking up and it's like, they're actually back 
on the course that they should have been taking the whole time. So this is what they have to do. They still have to get safely ashore. So their plan is, okay, we're going to cut the anchors. We're going to reposition the rudders, you know, loosen them so that they'll get in place and so that we can steer this thing the best we can and we're going to try to ram it on shore as close as we possibly can because the storm is still raging. So you can imagine everybody on board, okay, here we go. Everybody brace for impact, right? And so they're sailing straight on toward this island and the front of the ship hits first, hits this reef and you just imagine this massive thud, right? Like the Titanic hitting the iceberg. Everybody on board, on board is getting some whiplash and they're jolted by the impact. The back of the ship then, because they're stuck immediately, the back of the ship's getting pounded by the surf and it's starting to break up. Then, when this happens, uh, another level of panic starting to set in. Everybody's kind of thinking, okay, what do we got to do for ourselves? And the soldiers, like the crew members, are going, okay, if these soldiers, if these, any of these prisoners escape, we're going to die because we're responsible for them. That was kind of the Roman way, right? Like, it's, their blood is on you. If, if they get away, it's, it's going to reflect on you. And so they're going, we got we to gotta cover our own behinds here, right? So they're trying to tell the centurion, Julius, let's just kill the prisoners. It'll be understandable in this kind of situation. Let's kill the prisoners, kind of preserve ourselves here. And then something strange happens. Julius, this, this centurion, says, because he wants to save Paul, says, no, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, anybody that can swim, jump in, start swimming overboard, or start swimming toward the shore. Uh, if you can't swim, grab something, some kind of debris from the ship, and start making your way to, to the shore. And they get to the shore, and have, I'm having a little bit of liberty at this point, okay? So they get to the shore, and you kind of imagine they're just kind of crawling up there, and you imagine the natives kind of coming out of the trees, the people that live on the island. And they're just like, it's already been a long journey. And they're going, they're looking at these people going, are they friends or are they foes, right? And we're told in the text that they are treated with unusual kindness, which means these natives don't usually treat people this way when they wash up on their shoreline, okay? Or when they land, it, it usually goes differently. We're not given those details, probably to spare us here. But the reality is they're not usually treated with this level of kindness, but here they are warmly welcomed by this people. You can imagine them being like, here, here's a change of clothes. Here's this, here's that. Making sure that they kind of have what they need. Then Paul goes out to gather some wood to make a fire. And Paul and a viper comes out and fastens on his hand. Like a poisonous viper bites him. And you probably picked this up when it was being read. Like they're looking at it. They're going, the God of the sea, the God of justice didn't get him there, but now he's going to get him right now by this snake. And so they're literally, now they're just watching Paul. Watch him. He's going to swell up. He's going to kill over any minute now. You're just watching them all, watching him through the fire, you know? And they're like, then time goes by and they're like, he's not. He's not dying. And these people, they're so superstitious, it's hilarious, but they just go from like, he's gonna be struck down by the God of justice, and then it's like, he must be a God! Like, just the full pendulum swing here. One other thing that happens 
you know, on this island uh, while they're there is um, the, the chief man of the tribe. His father was sick. Paul goes and heals him. And, you know, some missionaries start hospitals to kind of long-term, like, cure people and help people and heal diseases and stuff. And um, that's wonderful. It's beautiful. Paul just took a little different approach. He just decided just to heal everybody on the island. <laughs> just do it right away. So that's, that's what happened here. Paul just heals everybody on the island. They stay there. They winter there for three months. And uh, we're told at the beginning of uh, verse 11 that there's another ship um, that's going to be heading out that had, that had taken up um, port there for the summer and, or for the, for the season, and it's going to be heading out. And so all these natives then give them all that they need for their journey. Bring it on board that ship, and then they're going to continue their journey for Rome. So that's a wild story. That's a great story. And now I want to step back and just reflect with you. Like, what are some of the things that we're meant to take away from this story? It is, I believe, in part for our entertainment. But there's some deep lessons, I think, to draw from this. I mean, think about these questions. I want you to answer these in your mind. How did they get back on course? Who brought them safely through? Why did the centurion care to preserve Paul? Why did the natives show unusual kindness? Why did Paul not die from the snake bite? This entire story just screams one central doctrine. Can you guess it? God's providence, the providence of God, the fact that God governs all of things in history to his intended purposes for his glory. God is acting in all of these ways, all these threads of the story is coming together. When it says they're brought safely ashore, we're not meant to go, oh, interesting. We're meant to go, wow, look what God did. I mean, this was a needle in a haystack to blow up on, to be blown to Malta and find an island there. I mean, this was God's doing, right? Most people swell up and die. There's a reason why the natives thought that way when he got bit by a viper. Not this guy. There's something different about him. God's hand is on him in a special way. In other words, God's providence. This story, this is the first thing I want us to reflect on. This story highlights the providence of God. God was behind these things. God was preserving and protecting Paul and not only Paul, but all those who were with him. And if you're on that ship, you're like, I'm glad I'm with that guy, right? I mean, that's a whole story says, I'm just really glad that Paul is on this ship. I don't know him. I don't know his God, but boy, this has really helped us in this situation. Um, and, uh, but the question, you know, you do raise the question like, but why allow a shipwreck on the way only to put them back on the right path? Like what? I mean, if you're on that ship, you're like, that was a wild ride. Glad we're okay, but... Why God? You know, I mean, it was terrifying, right, for people. Why would God allow that? Why does God permit us to experience things that we do on the way to glory, right? And this is the thing about the providence of God. We are not perfect readers of God's providence. His acting, his governing of things, his invisible hand guiding all things to his intended purposes, We're not the best judges of it, but we can see some. To act like we can't see any would not be true. But to act act like we can see all of it clearly would also be uh, not true. So I think Spurgeon 
nails it. One of my favorite preachers from church history, when he said this, and you've heard me say it before, when we can't trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. We can't understand all of it. God does allow good and hard things for good, wise, and fatherly reasons. Why does God do the things that he does? I mean, if you stop and thought about some things that just happen in your life, you could say, well, I know he does. He did that to encourage me. He did that to lift my chin. Like that just seemed to come out of nowhere. I've seen God do those things. He did that. He planted that there or that person there at this time to refresh me, you know, to guide me, to correct me, to discipline me, to expose what was really in my heart, my inward corruptions that still remain there. He did it to cultivate dependence when I've been prideful and trying to rely upon myself. Sometimes he does things to just teach us wisdom and greater caution so that we can be wiser in the future. There's many reasons and many other reasons that God uses and why God acts in his providence. But if you wanted just one verse to hang on it, and you know this verse, Romans 8, 28, right? God works out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works out all things for good. Which means he governs all things. He works out all things for good. And in that context, what's the great good? The ultimate good. Christ-likeness. It's to be like Christ, to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so if you feel like you're kind of being, you know, uh, you're getting hit by waves and you're being crashed on the shore of reality right now, on the rocks of reality, and, and uh, you, can, you can know that all things work together for good for you. And God has your ultimate good in view. And this is, this is one of the takeaways that we need to reflect on. God wants us to trust his wisdom and his care as he carries out his eternal plans. He wants us to. And uh, I want to share with you, some of you know this and are familiar with it, others maybe not, but I'm happy to introduce it to you. This is a poem by William Cooper. He was, he's, he's a poet, hymn writer, um, and uh, what's the name of the guy that wrote Amazing Grace again? John Newton. Um, he was good friends to him. Newton kind of mentored him, especially through some deep times of depression, and I really like Cooper's poems because, uh, and his hymns because they just, they just come out of a deep, deep wrestling um, with some of these realities. Otherwise, I don't think he could quite pen this the way he did. This is called God Moves in Mysterious Waves. God moves in, mysterious, in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds, of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. This is one of my favorite lines. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. 
and he will make it plain. I think it powerfully captures the providence of God that we see just laced throughout this story. But there's a second thing that I think we can walk away from, a lesson to learn from this text, and that's this. This story doesn't just highlight the providence of God, but it highlights the peace that comes from belonging to God. Drew this out a little bit, but I want to pause here. I want to linger here. Did you notice with all the chaos, the storm raging all around, all the panic on the ship, like there's one person that just had a calm. <laughs> like granted, I'm sure his heart was beating a little faster at some points. So I don't want to take away the humanness of it. But the things that are highlighted in the text really just show, like in the midst of all it, this guy's distinct from everybody else on that boat. Okay, and so you could say he was resting in the providence of God. He was trusting the one who controls the winds and the waves at the end of the day, the one who has purposes and the one who's given promises. And no doubt that fresh promise that was given helped tremendously in this situation. But um, I don't think it was just that singular promise that God gave. Like, in other words, that not a hair of your head is going to be harmed. You're, you're like, all this life is going to be preserved. I'm preserving you so you can stand before Caesar and not just you, but everybody on the ship with you. Um, that would be reassuring. That would be comforting, no doubt. But I think there's a deeper account that we can give for Paul's confidence. And I think it's summed up in two words that he himself utters when he says, I belong. Do you remember that in the text? Just to bring you back there to verse 23. He says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom, um, the angel of God, not speaking about the angel, but speaking of God, to whom I belong. I don't, wanna, I don't want us to miss this. Like for Paul, that was what was on his lips. While the, while the storm was raging all around, he said, I belong. I belong. I belong to God. There's a special relationship that I have with God that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. See, Paul, he remembers what it was like not to belong, right? And he knows that many people on the ship don't belong in this sense, Right? Like, that's Paul's God. Paul's saying, the God to whom I belong, the God whom I worship, right? In distinction from so many on the ship. Maybe with an exception of Luke and maybe a couple other brothers. But the reality is, is that many people are separated from Christ. I'm just using language from Ephesians 2 here. Separated from Christ. Alienated from his blessings. Strangers to his peace. Many are far off from God and don't know what it's like. Don't know what it's like to belong. Paul knew what it's like to belong. We've heard his story and his testimony three times in the book of Acts, right? It's pretty essential. Paul knew what it was like to be a stranger to Jesus Christ and not belong. But when God intervened and broke through in Paul's heart, and Paul surrendered to Jesus Christ, when Paul put his faith in Christ, something fundamental shifted. And it was so fundamental a shift that Paul, all the things that he naturally found security in, he threw overboard. He just threw overboard. Do you remember in Philippians 3, he gives that long list of accolades, things that he could you know, morally and religiously cling to to say that this, like these were the things he found security in. But when he found Christ, he's like, ah, throw the cargo overboard. It's slowing me down. Like, these things were not the things 
that were going to keep him safe anymore. He had one thing. So another way to put it is this. What did Paul fear most? Was it being blown out at sea endlessly and dying there? Or dying of hunger or thirst? Or dying of sword? Or nakedness and exposure? For Paul, these were not the things that he feared. The thing that he would have feared has been a fear that's been relieved. The only thing that Paul really believes that needs to be feared ultimately is the fact that God's wrath hangs over the heads of people that are far from him, right? But that's the point of the gospel and that's why Paul is on this voyage, right? Is that God has drawn near to people in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has died a sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. He rose from the dead. He drew near to us so that we could, by faith, draw near to him and no longer be aliens or strangers and no, no longer feel, feel ourselves to be foreigners to this peace that Paul is enjoying even in the midst of the storm like this. No longer a stranger or an alien, but a child welcomed into the family of God. And so this, this noble apostle that everybody looks up to, right? He's one of the, you know, one of the brightest characters in the story in the New Testament. And basically he's here in the midst of the storm saying, I'm just glad to be a child of God. I'm really glad to belong. I'm really glad that I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I just want to say this morning, like, isn't it a blessing to belong? <laughs> And that's the thing is like that, if we're a believer in Christ, that's our identity. The reality is we do belong. We do have a special relationship with God. He's never gonna leave us nor forsake us. You know, our relationship in terms of our position before God, that doesn't ultimately depend on our Bible reading that morning, right? Or even church, right? Or the good things that we do or how, how well we spent our time that day. Ultimately, it's gonna depend on have we put our faith in Jesus Christ? Have we trusted him? Do we belong to God? And the only way we can belong to God is by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Christ. If we had done that, like we can face a lot in this life with this sense of, I belong. I belong to the living God, the one true and living God through faith in Jesus Christ. God wants his children to exude this peace. Paul did on the ship right? And I think that his character here is a challenge to us. It's like reading a biography. You're like both kind of crushed by it. Like you're really challenged. I'm challenged by this too. Like this consistency of his character, right? But at the same time, it makes me want to, wants me to strive for it. It makes me want to grow in walking in this peace that is mine because I belong as a child of God. And, uh, you know, these kind of storms, they bring a lot out, don't they? I mean, the more the storm rolled on, you started to see things about people on the ship, didn't you? The panic setting in, the chaos. I think especially about the, the, the crew members and the soldiers. Like they got pressed, they got really desperate, and they got really, really, really selfish. Paul... You don't see Paul over there like grabbing his lunch, eating in the corner, you know. You Paul saying, hey, no one's eaten in, in a couple weeks. Let's eat and take some food, you know. In other words, like his eyes are out. He's caring for other people. Why can he do that? 
because he's not so busy trying to preserve himself. He knows that he has a father that he belongs to and that his father is looking out for him and caring for him. He's got him in that moment. And there's a sense of that's, that's what the Lord wants for every believer, this strong sense of I'm held by my father. No one will snatch me out of his hand. I'm gonna be fine. Now I can help other people a lot. And I can rejoice in that fact. And we can profess this. I belong. I love those words. I hope you'll walk away with them today. We want to exude this peace. And God wants to build this into his people to trust his providence in all circumstances, to roll with the waves, as it were. Trusting God's purposes and promises even when his purposes are slightly veiled and we don't understand them completely. To have peace, even think about this, when Paul led that meal, right? They weren't on the shore yet, okay? It's not like, when I'm safe, then I'll praise God. Then I'll remind myself that I belong to God. It's like, no, like in the storm still. So it's dark, the ship's being broken up. Paul's like, this is a great time to trust the Lord, This is a great time to trust the Lord. This is a great time to eat. And this is a great time to model for 275 other people that the God who made the wind and the waves can be trusted and that I trust him and I want them to trust him. It's a beautiful thing that's happening there. So for Paul, in one sense, he could say he could do that because he was safe without yet being in safety. Does that make sense? He was safe without even being on the shore yet because he, know, he knows whose hands he is in. And so um, <clears throat> before I move to the third and final one, I want to just quote this verse for you because um, I think Paul models it so well. The sense of belonging, right? Because I'm bringing out this, the peace that comes from belonging to God. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies, right? You are not your own, right? I love how a catechism puts it. What is your only hope in life and death? That I belong to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. That I belong body and soul, both to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Third time's a charm, right? Body and soul, I belong to him. He owns me. He purchased me, and therefore, I am his, And my response to that is, I want to glorify him with my body. And that leads us, I think, well, to our last point. This story highlights not just the pervasive providence of God and the power of belonging to God, but the importance of the gospel of God. The importance of the gospel and the spread of the gospel. And this is one of the things that struck me early on in this passage is when you read the details of it, this is a catastrophic event that just happened. I mean, A shipwreck is a really big deal, right? Especially if you're on the ship, right? And Luke was on the ship and he's recounting the details. But what kind of strikes me is that the way he communicates the detail is pretty like straightforward, matter of fact, like this is what happened on the way to Rome. (laughs) Like we're going to Rome. There's a lot of detail there, but this is what happened on the way to Rome. Shipwreck, yep. (laughs) Snake bite, Mm mm-hmm. In other words, whatever it takes. Like for the apostles, for early Christians, this was par for the course in the Christian life, right? Whatever it takes, we got to get the gospel. God's saying the gospel needs to go to Rome. I'm on a ship that the Lord has put me on. 
if things go awry on the ship, like whatever, whatever I have to endure. I mean, think about it. You don't see Paul going, why, oh, why? You see him going like, okay, Lord, if these are your plans, I hold it with an open hand. It wouldn't have been my itinerary. I thought the initial itinerary was fine, but then, you know, you hit a stiff breeze. And uh, I want you to read, I want to read for you a passage that many of you are familiar with. But this list, this is a list of some of the things that Paul, as an apostle, is willing to endure. I just want you to get his matter-of-fact mentality, his uh, whatever-it-takes mindset. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. And there's all these other people claiming to be apostles and making these claims. And Paul is, in a sense, pulling out something he doesn't typically pull out, but he's like, I'm going to act like a madman right now. You want to talk about service to Jesus Christ? Let's do it. Okay, so this is what he's doing. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, picking up at verse 23, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Make it four, I think. Uh, A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Could you imagine on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Do you think it's dangerous to be an apostle? (laughs) Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Shipwreck, yep. Snake bite, mm-hmm. Like there's a matter of factness in the Christian life and I know that God wants to create people like this at FBC. He wants to build people, build Christians that have this kind of mindset. We don't get shocked that hard things happen in the providence of God in the Christian life. We just keep focusing on the things that God's calling us to do and whatever comes, we're just saying he has some wise, wise beautiful, fatherly purpose behind the things that we're going through right now. And, it, and you might not know all the reasons why, but you can know for certain that God is gonna use those things for your good. You can be confident in that. But that matter of factness, like even just think about how the things, the ways that we talk about our, our, our own struggles and trials, like in one sense, and I'm speaking to myself right now, it's like, you know, you utter these little subtle complaints and things like, it's kind of like, I need to have just more of this backbone here. Like a little bit of the, more of this needs to get in the American Christian, you know, where we go, yeah, and? Doesn't mean we don't weep with those who weep and bury each other's sorrows and stuff like that. I'm not saying that, but I am just saying there should be a little bit more of a toughness to us that comes from trusting the providence of God and comes from a deep sense of belonging to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. And so this catastrophic event is given the straightforwardness to show like, hey, there's a toughness and it shows the importance of the gospel advancing. Like in other words, notice what he says, even with those beautiful words like the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. He says, he says that God told him, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar elsewhere in Acts leading up to this point. It's like the gospel, the good news about Jesus has to be declared in Rome. 
before the most powerful ruler on the planet at the time. The gospel must go there. So in other words, God's purposes will not be thwarted. The gospel must advance. It must get to Rome. And we must say here, it must reach the nations. It must go forth, whatever it takes. And we don't want to treat this lightly. We're going to send out two of our dearest, you know, soon to the nations. And we're going to expect them because it's going to be hard. They're going to go to some of the hardest places, you know. It's going to be really hard. It could be very costly. And we want them to have a whatever it takes mentality. We certainly more and more should grow into a whatever it takes mentality here, stateside, don't we think? Let's do this. This is not for just a special class of Christians. This is, this is meant to be embodied and emulated by all of God's people. God wants to build this kind of people. But see, he wants a people, that whatever it takes to see the gospel advance, God will make a way. And uh, it is striking to me, and I say this in conclusion, that I don't know if you notice this, but you know, everywhere in the book of Acts, it's just like the gospel is being shared everywhere. But that detail doesn't even show up like when, he, uh, when he's on the island of Malta. Like he's healing people and stuff like that. But like it doesn't explicitly say it. I would bet my house on it that he was sharing the gospel during those three months. But, uh, but like it's just interesting. There's just so many details you just kind of wonder about, you know. And uh, it strikes me, you know, that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wants to emphasize not the preaching of Malta, but the voyage to Rome. The point is the gospel is advancing. The gospel must go forward. All of us are part of a much bigger story and our hearts need to gravitate in that direction. Like where the bow of that ship is pointed, we need to be headed to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's where the book of Acts is pointing us. And there's all these things you wonder about. And like if you're a filmmaker, if you've ever thought about like how filmmakers put their films together, um, or even authors put their novels together, they're scenes, right? Okay, or chapters, like in a book. And you could see them in their studio, kind of laying them out visually, okay? And they're thinking them through them. They're like, oh, I really like that scene. But to make the point more, I got to take that out. And it makes it more streamlined. And that's why it's like you have scenes that have to be deleted, right? And so that's kind of what it's like here. It's just like, what else happened on Malta? Like, what else happened in this place? Like, what were some other things that God was doing behind the scenes? Like, what are some of the backstories? What are some of the deleted scenes? I mean, the scriptures themselves say about Jesus and his ministry that, if, that all, the books in the wor- all the books in the world could not contain all the things that Jesus did, you know? And so there's a sense in which there's a lot more stories. There's a lot more backstory. And I'm gonna say, I don't usually end on a note of speculation, but I feel pretty hopeful about this one, okay? Um, I think that part of the joy of heaven is going to be learning the backstories to these things. In other words, like we're going to start putting the pieces together and no one's going to lie or embellish stories because we're all going to be perfectly sanctified at that point. And we're going to be able to see like what God was doing when we didn't quite realize it. You know? And as I was thinking about this point, you know, like, you know, you sometimes get on a DVD, the bonus scenes. Like, you get to see those. It's kind of like, oh, that was really good, you know? It actually helps you appreciate the story even more. 
Imagine eternity running into brothers and sisters from all over the world, getting to hear about the deleted scenes, getting to hear about what was happening, part of the backstory, and how our little stories fit into the big story. And one of the things that that I was thinking about that was so sweet to me was, I'm looking forward to hearing your backstories. Like getting, like being able to hear what God was doing through you, how God was using you and how God was helping you endure through these things and the kind of ramifications that that had that you couldn't even see at the time. But we're gonna see a lot more clearly because in part, we're gonna be talking to people that were impacted by it. And so at the end of the day, it's like, don't give up, okay? Whatever waves are gonna hit you on the way to the ends of the earth, like whatever God's calling you to do, it's like, take another wave. Trust God's providence. Lean into the reality that you belong to him. And I just want to pray right now that God would help sink that down deeper into each of our hearts because I think that's the bottom of it, that we know that we belong. So let's pray that God would push it down a little deeper. Lord, I thank you. Thank you so much for this story that you gave in a lot of detail, but we even realize with all the detail you gave, there's still a lot more. The backstory. And we look forward to all these things coming to light in the age to come. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk away today with a deeper sense that we belong to you, that we were purchased by the blood of your son. And that if you purchased us as your possession at such an infinite cost, you are surely not going to dispose of us. Lord, help us to know that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And I pray especially for brothers and sisters that are really struggling to trust God's providence right now. Lord, that they feel blown helplessly at sea. Lord, help them to know that there's a Malta there and you control the wind and the waves and they'll end up on the shore at the right time. Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen our fellow brothers and sisters. Help us to trust your providence more than we did yesterday. And I pray that you'd fill us with this deep sense of belonging that we'd be able to say with the apostle in the midst of the storm, I belong. (laughs) Now let's eat. So Lord, help us to rejoice in the fact that we belong today. And for those who don't belong yet, those who are far off, those who are strangers and aliens to the kind of peace that can be had in Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray for them, even this moment, Lord, that you would help them to have a clear sense of surrender to you. Lord, that they would quit trying to just preserve themselves, but that they would throw themselves on Jesus Christ for the preservation of their souls now and for eternity. Help them to close with you today, Lord. And that they too would join us with this deep sense of belonging, something we grow into this whole life. And we thank you that when you appear, Lord Jesus, then we will know truly how much we belong to you. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.